Hey kids, welcome back to the Clean Slate Farm Podcast. I'm Dave Lenweaver, your host. Today we're going to be talking with Craig LaHoulier. Craig is a tomato expert, and we're going to be talking about dwarf tomatoes, starting seeds in an unusual way, growing tomatoes, and saving the seeds. It's a long show, so stick around. It's packed with a lot of information. Before we get going, I have a favor to ask. Whatever podcast app you're listening to and using, please hit subscribe. That helps people find our show and gives us a better rating. If you can go to iTunes and hit like, that helps a lot too. Let's get going with our talk with Craig. Craig, thanks for joining us today on the Clean Slate Farm podcast. Uh, let's get a little bit into your background uh, and how that led to tomatoes, because you are, I think you're getting pretty well known as the tomato <laughs> expert in the world here. <laughs> Seems to be happening, and thanks for the opportunity to to chat about tomatoes, Dave. I always enjoy it. Um, so I'm one, of those, I'm one of those very lucky gardeners, and I've, I know there's a lot of common experiences where my grandfather on my mom's side and my father both enjoyed gardening in the outdoors. So when I was, oh, two, three years old, my grandfather would walk me into his huge garden, and I just became familiar with the smells and the sights and, and the sounds and the joy of growing things and the daily adventure. Um, so that was the seed of gardening that was planted in me. As far as tomatoes specifically, I never liked tomatoes as a kid, but I did love my grandfather. And I must have been mid-teens, well, maybe 12 or 13, and he grew these beautiful red tomatoes and brought them over. My mom said, you got to try one of these. And I'm like, well, you know, if, if my grandfather Walter grew them, I'll give him a shot. And it was, it was truly love at first bite. They were succulent and juicy and wonderful. So that, that was my first love of a tomato. But as far as why uh, my focus on it as what's become a vocation, um, my wife and I get married in 1980, and the first thing we wanted to do is have a garden. So we were up in Hanover, New Hampshire, and the college gave us a plot. And uh, we started our own garden and started with the typical six-pack of better boys or whatever from the local nursery. But I'm I'm one of these strange people that get really bored with the ordinary very quickly. So I started getting seeds from seed catalogs, but that was limiting. Then I discovered the Seed Savers Exchange in 1986. And why grow 100 different tomatoes when you can choose amongst 10,000 different tomatoes? And um, th that was it. I started uh, my collection, collecting heirlooms. That led to developing varieties and finding commercial varieties and uh, so the journey began really seriously in 1986. Here we are in 2018. It continues unabated, and I'm having the time of my life and really don't see an end to the fascination with these things. That's great. Now, that's that explains why tomatoes, because it could have been any number of things, but I also presume because carrots or, or eggplants <laughs> or something like that would be kind of difficult to do varieties of, which you do, and... Uh, so you've been breeding for a long time and the varieties, I mean, you've named it the Cherokee purple, which is a tomato I've heard of for a long time yeah. and didn't know that you handled that. Uh -huh. uh, and then dwarf tomatoes also. Now dwarf tomatoes, like a year ago or a little longer than a year ago, I f was searching the web for tomato seeds because I like tomatoes. Yeah. And I came across this dwarf tomato project thing. Was like, what is this? Yeah. Now that has been an adventure. But I think you asked, you made an interesting statement a little while ago, and that gets even for a little deeper into why tomatoes. So you think, what of everything that we can grow has incredible diversity, um, is relatively easier or really easy to save seeds from, tends to not cross pollinate very well, and comes with this amazing selection of stories in an infinite number of colors and flavor nuances. So as a chemist, I love to cook. Um, kind of a foodie type that likes to taste different things and find just gradations of quality and characteristics. So the tomato actually, I think, chose me to be someone to take care of them because so many people over the years have sent me great varieties. And uh, after maybe, oh, a 10-year run through as many heirlooms as I could get my hands on, um, I, we've been selling seedlings in the Raleigh area for about 20 years. And, and our most frequently asked question was, what have you got that tastes great, but I can't, but I don't have to do deal with the 10, 12 foot vines of the sun golds or the Cherokee purples, the indeterminate types. I want to grow it in a pot in my patio. So I thought, well, the sad thing is not a whole lot in the short stature varieties that will succeed in a small, like a five gallon pot taste is good is the large vine tomato. So 
we embarked on a project and that started the concept for that project really began in 2005 and here we are in 2018 and my uh, wonderful collection of now up to 500 or more people all over the world all of which are amateur all are just home gardeners and all of them completely understand this is an exercise in total altruism we we work on this we share data we share seeds we get results and we don't get a penny at the end of the day because that's what we want to do. We just want to create great things for home gardeners to fulfill a niche that had been out there for a while. And it's very gratifying to me that we've had seed companies embrace this. We seem to have lots of gardeners that are now embracing it. And they're just, it's like when you drop a pebble into a puddle and you get a little ripple. It takes a, the ripple it effect, takes yeah. a long time for those ripples. E- even with my tomato book, Epic Tomatoes, it came out three and a half years ago, I named Cherokee Purple back in 1990. There are still people that don't connect me with Cherokee Purple or have never seen one or have never grown one. And people are finding yeah. my book for the first time. So I, I'm fascinated with watching how any interest, any creation, it takes a long time for things to absorb into public consciousness just because that's how it works. It, it just, yeah. So it, so it's a multi-level fascination to me to see how this is working on many, many different ways. Well, that's one of the things that I enjoy about gardening to begin with. My life in the restaurant, I work in restaurants, and when service starts, life is just very hectic. And the thing I appreciate about gardening is that it teaches you patience. Is You can you can talk to the seed and talk to the little seedling, it's not going to help. It's going to grow at its own rate. So you need to be patient. Now, let's yeah. back up just a moment. We're talking about dwarf tomatoes yeah. here. Please explain a dwarf tomato because I think I mentioned it to somebody else. And they said, why would you want little right, tomatoes? Just grow right. tomatoes. It's like, no, 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 you don't understand. So explain that. Sure. So many people actually, <clears throat> excuse me, many people are not aware that dwarfs are actually a third class of tomatoes when you look at how they grow. So 95% of tomatoes are indeterminate. They're tall growing, they're infinite growing. They're the ones that really came across from Europe in the mid 1800s. Then there's the determinate tomatoes like Taxi and Roma that form these nice little three foot tall balls of tomatoes that ripen almost all at once. Great for canning but not great for flavor. Those didn't arise on the scene until 1920s. The third type, which is dwarf, that we've been really playing around with, it arose actually in a uh, Chateau de Lay, which was a chateau in France in the 1850s, made its way into a few American seed catalogs, but it was kind of small and red and not particularly impressive as an edible specimen. So it languished. And a few seed companies extended it a little bit and made a pink one, dwarf champion, and a yellow one, golden dwarf champion, that arose in the 1880s, 1890s. But that was kind of it. Um, Tom Wagner, who's a uh, Pacific Northwest tomato breeder, uh, worked with them a little bit and created one called Lime Green Salad that came out in the 1970s or 80s. And that's a good little tomato. But nobody up to that point had this incredible range of heirlooms, the big one pounders, the stripes, the yellows, the whites, to use as as breeding partners. So what we did, I had a friend in Australia who liked to cross tomatoes and we met on a website called GardenWeb. And, she, and we thought together, what if we cross our few known dwarfs that are really, really cute plants, thick central stem, three to four foot stature, they bear fruit until frost. So what I think of a dwarf tomato is, is a short stature plant that behaves like an indeterminate in the way it fruits and in its flavor potential, but it has the growth characteristics and the convenience in a lot of cases, as a determinate tomato. So it's kind of the perfect marriage of those two. They're they're incredibly evident by looking at that incredibly thick central stem, a very dark bluish-green crinkled foliage that's called rugose, but it's just genetics. It is a type. So we started crossing varieties. Uh, We used Cherokee Purple as a parent and Brandywine as a parent, et cetera, et cetera. We ran out of the Disney dwarf names really fast for our families because there are only seven of them, and we've made almost 100 crosses now. So we do have things like sleazy and cheesy, and you know, we, we've, we've made some really perverse Disney dwarfs now. So, you know, <laughs> but we, wanted to, we, we, need to, we like that way of naming convention with the E sound on the end. So we've got all these families. Right. 
But then the mechanisms of it is, and we can no longer trade seats with Australia because some years ago, Australia became quite concerned with certain diseases coming to the country. It's it's an island country, and so they have to be really careful. So we've split the project maybe five or six years ago, but we had progressed enough now where we have enough material on uh, both sides of the ocean where we're taking things ourselves. But we just we just got a group of people together, and we I'd send them the new hybrid seed, and we'd grow it out and then save seeds from that. We'd isolate exciting possibilities. As you say correctly, dwarf does not mean dwarf fruit. It means dwarf stature. But we've got things from cherry size up to one pound or more on a plant that can grow three to three, four feet tall, which is quite stunning when you look at it. And we take things out to the seventh, eighth, ninth generation because what we want to do is get stable varieties to people that they can save seeds from and replicate it. And that's where we got to. We've got... We've got t- tomatoes that taste fully as good and are, are as fully visually interesting as the taller, well-known, indeterminate, tall-growing heirlooms, but now people can grow them on a patio and a deck. And that we started releasing these in 2010. Here we are in 2018. We have 90 in seed catalogs. By the end of this year, we will have 110. And if all goes well, I will have my book self-published on the dwarf breeding project because it's a story that it really needs to be told because no one has undertaken a project quite like this. That will be coming out in the fall as well. And then we'll just see where things get to. But it's um, it has overtaken my heirloom. Pa- I still have the heirloom passion, but it's giving me something else to do and another way to fulfill my need for lots of variety. And for those of you listening, I grow, and Craig, I grow three dwarf varieties. I have the... Uh, I'm going to draw a blank now. Uh, chocolate has Tasmanian, Tasmanian chocolate, chocolate, yeah. And then the sweet Scarlet yes. King, is that what it's called? And one other, I can't think of what it is. And I was amazed because the bush is, <laughs> the plant is yes. compact, gives me tomatoes that have unbelievable yeah. flavor. And I like to make, or I have a tomato soup that I do that is I roast yeah. the tomatoes and it just, it just tastes so good. And I don't have vines going all over the place that get out of control, uh, you know, with suckers yeah. taking over. And we'll talk about yeah, that. Well, what, I, what I like to but, say is that dwarf tomatoes are the perfect use for the useless tomato cage. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I didn't even I didn't even use a tomato right. cage. I, drew, I sure. put a steak down in. I tied it up about I, I yeah. one time. And it's just great they, tomatoes. They are, so they are covered. So. They, yeah, they they, well, they are conversation pieces because when people take a look at those plants, not often that you look at a plant and say the plant is beautiful as well as the tomatoes, but yeah, they yeah, they really plant. are. Well, good. I'm so gratified that yeah. you find joy with them and that you've used them because, you know, when you're talking about uh, the patience it takes, I love to cook as well. And I was thinking maybe maybe gardening is like the risotto of, of, uh, <laughs> of the cooking world because that takes patience. You stand it and you stir it and you drink your wine while you're seeing it come together. And uh, that's what gardening is like. It's not immediate gratification. But the journey, the right. journey is almost more enjoyable than actual the actual destination because it gives you something healthy yeah. and fascinating to do. You're learning something every time you walk out into the garden. The birds are providing your soundtrack. It's I can you tell I kind of like gardening. <laughs> I, I was just gonna say you don't like nah, gardening. Nah, horrible, <laughs> horrible, frustrating, all that stuff. No. So the current status of the project, you just went yeah. through that. You're gonna be publishing yep. a book on that. Uh self-publishing a book. And you've got over how many five? We'll have uh, hundred and ten hopefully in the fall. And, and where we are working now is um a lot of people are interested in these tomatoes like indigo rose that have the the dark, almost bluish purple shoulders. They haven't tasted too good. We've actually have incorporated some of that coloring to some of our new dwarfs that are maybe two or three years away. And we're we're playing with foliage colors. So we're, we're going to have some variegated foliage tomato plants out with delicious tomatoes. So the plants are going to be white and green to make them even more visual interesting. And we're embarking on pastes and cherries. So we want to, so if you can grow it in an indeterminate tall plant, we want people to have an analogous experience in a dwarf growing plant. Um, I would say we're winding the project down in terms of the fact that I just don't have the bandwidth to be able to manage the size that it's become. But 
Why, your driveway now, is not Well, it's not only the driveway. <laughs> now that, you know, the book has led me to some just wonderful opportunities to go out and speak. Um, I want to write books three, then four, and then five, then six, which will lead to other speaking engagements and other garden projects. So I'm trying to distribute it out and put some of the lines in some really good gardeners' hands. But I'm also trying to real to take the realization that it's sometimes hard to end things and that, you know, if you get to a project that's put out 100 or 110 varieties, maybe it is time to ramp it down a little bit and then see what other projects pop. But um, I'll always keep yeah. it on another cooking term. I always have – I'll have it simmering on low at the back of the stove because we keep discovering great things and we can't leave anything on the table that's undeveloped that's going to be a great tomato. So um, – I am terrible right. at saying no. I am terrible at stopping things. Um, but mm -hmm. you only have so many hours awake in the day. So uh, we'll see how it all works right. out. Yeah. And I found sometimes, too, it's interesting to take something to to my logical end and then pass that on and see who can take that to the next step. Because, uh, you know, I like to say that I don't have a lock on, right. on good ideas. And there are plenty of people that can look at something and say, oh, you should have done this. And it's like. Duh. What? It's exactly. the beauty of cooking. It's the beauty of gardening is that anybody who, anybody who yeah. picks up a pot or a spoon or digs a hole and plants a plant is going to learn something that's going to be slightly different than you or I. And I think uh, maybe cooking and gardening do have a lot in common because they're not, um, they're not good hobbies for narcissistic people. They're, they're hobbies for humble people right. because we need to appreciate the fact that we're only going to learn a tiny fraction of what there is out there. And it's going to be the power and the knowledge of all of our friends and everybody else who builds on that. And just over time, it just gets more and more fascinating. Yeah, it does. Let's talk a little bit about mm. growing tomatoes because I noticed uh, you have a YouTube channel. And what is it? NC yep. Tomato That's Man? It. Is that what it is? Yeah. And uh, I think most people <laughs> will plant their seeds, put a little seed mm -hmm. into a pot, and when it grows, it gets leggy and they worry about that. And, and you've... I've learned quite a bit from your YouTube channel. And then you broad, not broadcast, but you like group a bunch. Yeah. And I'm going to let you talk a little bit more about this, but I watched <laughs> you doing this and I'm thinking, my God, yeah. he's manhandling. Tough love, plants. man. Tough love. <laughs> yeah. And it works. Yeah, I just it works it. <laughs> well. And, you know, it's interesting that we're talking about this because um, it's been out there for a while, but um, – when Joe Lample approached me to do the Growing a Greener World episode and he and I became friends, he he took to this. And so all of a sudden he decides he wants to embark on it. And so my little um, dense seedling technique is now out there. And I feel a little bit exposed about it because I've been doing it a long time and I know how to make all parts of it work. But maybe the real test is now when it's out there, it's distributed, people are trying it. And, li and like we just talked about, people are going to learn little ins and outs about it. Maybe there are little aspects that I didn't fully explain that people are going to go, ah, Craig, you should have mentioned this. This is really critical. But Joe Lample's got... Well, yeah, and let people learn yeah, a little but, bit by but themselves. But Joe's got too. thousands of seedlings now, and it's worked for him. So this is like the big whoosh, because if if it wouldn't have worked for him, I would have thought, oh, my gosh, what did I... But, but I know it works. So what I do is um, critical success factors for starting seeds are definitely using a really sterile, fluffy, soilless seed starting mix. Um, my favorite is Metromix 360, but there's Fafford 3B. You know, Johnny's makes one. Uh, you can Pro Mix. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it's just you don't go out into the garden and get a, a bunch of your dirt and plant seeds into it because that soil is heavy. It's probably got clay. Right. It probably has different fungal diseases. But, you know, dry fill, a plug flat. You can use an egg carton. You can use a single pot. You can plant one if you want. But I just tend to go crazy. I have no greenhouse. So the challenge for me was I want to sell seedlings. How do I make six or 7,000 seedlings with no greenhouse? Well, you get a 50-tray plug flat. You fill it with that soilless mix. You sprinkle 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, up to 70 seeds in that little one-and-a-half-inch one square. You barely cover them. Just sprinkle a little planting mix on it. I missed it a little bit. Loosely put a, a piece of saran wrap on, put it on a heat mat in front of my cell-facing window. Those tomatoes pop in four or five days. I use this method on peppers, eggplant, tomatoes, of course. I've used it on lettuce, beets, chard, flowers, herbs, basil. So this, this is the way I can get 2,000 to 3,000 plants in a footprint that's one by two feet. Um, one of the changes I've made is direct sun is always going to be healthier for seedlings than artificial light. And some of us live geographically in places where we're going to have to depend on artificial light 
for a month or so, because if you leave it in front of the window, the plants will get leggy. Um, It's okay. You can rescue them, but it's not a pretty sight. You get those seedlings under cool shop lights lowered so that the, the tops of those lights are within one inch of the plants or even LED lights now. And uh, Joe, Joe Lample has been playing with these and he found that you need about three or four feet above the seedlings with LEDs because of the increased intensity. Yeah, because really? they throw high. so much light that you can burn the foliage. Um, yeah, so wow. this is all like learning. This is stuff that I've not done, but Joe's done. And this is a this is a great case of building on the knowledge of each other. What I do now here in Raleigh, because we get warm so fast, is sometimes my seedlings don't see a minute of artificial light. And what I do, once they're a couple of inches tall and they're starting to bend a little bit, I'll pick a day where it's partly cloudy or I'll look in my front yard where I've got dappled sun. It's maybe 45, 50 degrees. I'll put them out for an hour bring them in the garage. The next day they get two hours. The next day they get three or four hours. Within a week to a week and a half, they're living outside in the direct sun. Make sure you watch the watering. Um, They don't like cold wind. Uh, 32 is a no-no. That will kill them. But once you get your tomato seedlings Mm -hmm. hardened off, mine get potted up individually. I use the same planting mix. I dry fill three and a half inch pots and I just kind of poke those seedlings you pop out your group of 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 plants and you press them with their thumb. They actually, if your planting mix isn't really, really wet, they come apart quite easily. And, and so, right. And it almost looks like, it almost looks like, uh, yes, like onion yes. seeds at that exactly. point. Exactly. And plants. you will break a few roots, but here's the thing to remember with tomato plants, anything under the soil surface is going to fairly quickly root. And so I have broken plants right. off from their roots totally in the transplanting. And I just pop those into a pot deeply, leave them under the grow lights. Don't put them outside, water them. They've rooted and they form a completely healthy plant within a week or so. So always all kinds of ways to rescue tomato plants if you do happen to be a little too rough. And uh, But I can do about yeah. two, two fifth, 250 seedlings an hour. And once you get them transplanted, I like to leave them in my garage kind of in the dark, but I'll open the garage during the day, but out of the direct sun for a good three or four days to let those roots reacclimate mm-hmm. to that new planting medium, be able to start taking up that water. If you were to rush those into the direct sun, a lot of them would burn out and uh, they'd probably die. So it's all about having that feel of thinking about what that plant the root system, the size of the root system, its ability to take up water. What are the conditions going to do to it? Um, We have had some nights where it's going to approach 32. And instead of carrying 5,000 plants in, I'll get like a floating row cover or a remay and I'll double cover them. That gives them three or four degrees of protection. And I have not lost a seedling. I've had it go 30 degrees at night, but if I'm covered up with remay, they're fine. Um, Now, some of this takes a leap of faith and you will lose sleep. You'll lay in bed and you'll go, how are my seedlings? Oh my God. Or I'll be traveling and I won't sleep because I'll think 2,000 miles away, my seedlings may freeze. Um, But, you know, we know best given time, really, we have this intuition of what's going to happen. And if we really think it's going to get really cold, yes, I have taken the full hour and the back pain and moved them all into the garage because you don't want to undo all of that good work that you did just by being a little bit lazier and attentive and ex- in exposing your seedlings to a frost temperature. That's that's the epitome of depression to a gardener when you lose all of your stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And and I've noticed uh <clears throat> excuse me. I've noticed that uh I, I lost my train of thought there, the train left the station. Anyway, <clears throat> we'll move on a little bit. Uh so now mm-hmm. you've transplanted you've taken the yep. seedlings and you put them into new pots and you yep. water them, you give them that yep. little bit of time to acclimate, transplanting into your final yeah. container. So one thing is there. once my seedlings are f- first transplanted, they're tiny little things. They look like they're not going to do much, but you get them out into the sun and we start getting the mild evenings. So with tomatoes, peppers, and eggplant, they don't – if um, Which is all – but to interrupt, right. it's all the soil. And uh, I find with most things, yep. but those especially, they like warm roots, which means – cool nights, you're not going to see a lot of progress, but the roots are growing. It's just, you're not going to get a lot of top growth. You start getting the acclimation of the plant into the pot and the roots expanding and start getting those first few warm, mild evenings. Those plants are going to shoot up like skyrockets. And I don't feed uh, my seedlings anything until they're into the customer's hands or into the, they're into my final garden location. 
and this is kind of uh, a two-pronged thing. Number one, uh, tomato plants get everything they need in the embryo in the little seed to get to a pretty good size. And then the sun is shining on them and they're doing photosynthesis and they're, they're essentially feeding themselves at that point. Now, as they get bigger and starting mm-hmm. to set fruit, you need the certain nutrients, the NPK. But there's another thing, and that's the, the individual philosophy of gardeners. And we have all kinds of gardeners right now. We have strictly organic. We have tending towards organic. We have the break out the chemicals. It's all good. And I'm not going to knock any approach, but I will recognize that every gardener will come to terms with their own personal gardening philosophy. So if I were to feed those seedlings before they get into people's hands, I would be imprinting them with my own personal philosophy and and possibly making those plants, rendering them unattractive to certain people who did want to go strictly organic. So it, they don't need it and I don't do it. And it turns out that that Metro mix that I use has just enough of a trace of a starter food so that it will take those plants up to six or eight inches tall and they'll, they'll be just fine. Um, once I settle them into yeah. their final location, um, usually that location will have, whether you're using like a, a bagged commercial potting mix amended with some cow manure or some good compost you've probably got enough nutrients in there to get the plant started as well. So I usually wait till the plants are about a foot tall. They've been in the ground a couple of weeks. And then I'll just use a balanced, you know, 10, 10, 10, roughly speaking. But when the number, when you have a little bit of each of those numbers, the first being nitrogen, the second being phosphorus, and the third being potassium, which are the three main nutrients that tomatoes really enjoy. Um, if I'm in a container, mm-hmm where you're watering frequently and where we are in Raleigh, it gets really hot. And I'm actually watering my container grown gardeners, my container grown tomatoes daily. I am feeding weekly, weekly. So a little bit of a weak dose of fertilizer every week to compensate for all of that watering. Mm -hmm. If you're in a garden plot where the roots can keep accessing, you're not getting it leaching out the bottom and onto my driveway, but it's staying in the ground probably every two to three weeks looking at the tomato plant as your guide, where if you've got nice lush green foliage, if you've got flowering, if your fruit are setting, your plant is telling you it's quite happy. If your foliage starts bleaching out and look a little bit pale and you're um, just not getting a lot of good blossoms. Now there could be other factors like insufficient sun or stress. And that's where we get into the Rubik's cube of diagnosing what tomato plants are telling us once they start getting mature, but I'm getting ahead of myself. But but I think I but I think I filled you in a little bit about, you know, you've got your transplants, getting them into the ground, burying them right. burying them deep is extremely useful. Um, let's say you've got a plant that you've mm-hmm. had in a three and a half inch pot and it's two feet tall and it's flapping in the breeze a little bit. Now, if you put that plant at soil level and you've got that two feet still flapping in the breeze, uh, number one, you need to stake that because a tomato plant stem is quite brittle and you could have a windy day. We'll just snap that baby mm-hmm. right off. Uh, number two, it's still probably a little bit vulnerable and a really cold rain may just suck some of the moisture out that and really bleach the leaves. But you're missing out on an opportunity to bury that plant deeply. Get all of that. Get yeah, system. get all of that stem under the ground, which is going to increase the root system and you may think, wow, I've taken my two-foot plant and I've now created a six-foot, a six-inch plant. I'm losing ground. But when you do that, that plant is going to take off like a skyrocket and it will it will catch up to and go beyond the plant that you just put that little root ball in the ground with. Uh, yeah, I've done with the tomato plants bearing that. I just what I do. I'll take it and if if I've got four inches of stem showing, yes. I bury it. Just just you know, and I take it as an opportunity to get more roots. Yeah, now this, there's another thing that can happen. Some people in some areas of the country have an issue with the occasional cutworm. So you plant your tomato plant, you go out in your garden one morning, you're a little sad because this little worm has encircled your plant near the base and essentially eaten through it, chopped it off, and your plant's laying on the ground. Now, originally, a lot of people would think, oh, that's dead. If you've caught it early in the morning before the sun shines and sucks all the moisture over that plant, just take the top of that plant, Mm -hmm. stick it in a glass of water, bring it in the house, put it in an east-facing window. That will re-root in about a week. Go back out to your location, dig up your poor dead root system from that chopped off plant, put your new plant in there, mulch it water it and you've you've rescued it so there are so many ways to rescue tomatoes that look like they're in trouble 
Yeah, basically, I you know I came to the conclusion a long time ago. Basically, tomatoes are weeds. Yes, just let it go. Yeah, it'll do what it wants to do. Yeah, so. it's only if the deer decide to get hungry and chomp it off, or exactly, or if you got a really yeah. dire disease that gets in through the root systems and kills the plant or frost. Mm-hmm. So there, so there are things that can be bad for a tomato, but they really do. Like many plants, their goal is to make seeds, to make babies, to replicate themselves. Mm-hmm. So they're going to do everything they can to survive. Now, let's talk a little bit about tomato colors, mm. because I re- reading your book, you mentioned there's there's white tomatoes, yellow tomatoes, orange yeah. tomatoes, pink tomatoes, red tomatoes. What what causes is it the skin or is it the flesh that causes the color of the tomato, and does that affect acidity? Great. Oh, this is a wonderful question because we're we're going to cover a few things. Um, like you and I, and I don't know if you have brown hair, brown hair, blonde hair, brown eyes, blue eyes. It's but, gray but, at this point. Yeah, well, me too. <laughs> and in fact, mine is starting to uh, become harder to find. But that being given, it's all controlled by our genes. So, so my particular genes have blue eyes, formerly brown hair, and uh, um, a little bit of onset pattern, male pattern baldness, but that's okay. Um, Each tomato is unique, has its own set of genes. In that gene is a growth habit, a leaf shape, um, a flavor, but also a flesh color and a skin color. And the color of tomato is controlled. So the visual color of a tomato, when you look at it uncut, is the effect of the internal color that is impacted by the overlay of the skin color. So if, and this this is important for cooks and chefs to understand because you could, you could grow 10 different colored tomatoes, but when you slice those tomatoes, you end up with four or five different colored tomatoes. Uh, for example, let's take a well-known red, better boy. Red tomato, scarlet colored, red flesh, yellow skin gives it that scarlet color. Let's take the tomato brandywine. So when you say, uh, let yeah, me no. for a second. When you say yellow skin, if I were to carefully peel off the skin off a red skin and a yellow skin, they would it's going to sound obvious, would be completely different colors. Yes. And that affects the, yes. the color of the tomato. So if the skin of a better boy would be yellow. The skin of a brandy wine would be clear. So if you put those two tomatoes on a plate cut and show them cut side up, people would say, oh, look, you got the same tomato there. Whereas if you were to flip it and show the skin color, you would say, oh, look, you've got a red tomato and a pink tomato. Uh, and the, that basic skin color is what tends to really be responsible, and it doubles the potential number of tomato colors. So you have green flesh tomatoes that can look amber or mint green. You have uh, yellow tomatoes that can appear bright yellow or can appear orange. When you take uh, the black tomato family, Cherokee purple has clear skin and it looks purplish. Cherokee chocolate has yellow skin and it appears almost a chocolatey brownish. So it's fascinating and people can do that. They can take their tomato that they grow and if they grow a range of tomatoes, carefully peel away a little of the skin and look at what that is. And it's just an additive effect of looking at the flesh color through Mm -hmm. that skin that makes it kind of fascinating. Now, there are genetics for stripes. And so a striped tomato, you can peel that skin away and you will see striations of clear and yellow, which then play on the interior and give that tomato a striped appearance. Um, now, this, these are the two things then that, that blow people's minds. I've grown 3,000 different types of tomatoes. I've tasted them all. I can actually remember their flavors. There is no real correlation between the color of tomato and its flavor. Uh, We eat with our eyes, so a lot of times people will look at a tomato and expect it to taste a certain way. So they'll look at a white tomato and think, oh, that's going to be really very mild and bland, perhaps, and sweet. Well, I'll give them one of our dwarf Mr. Snows uh, blindfolded. They take a bite and they go, my gosh, that tomato is so tart and flavorful. It's just made my taste buds do it a happy dance here. Um, Take off the blindfold. You'll go, you got to be kidding me. That was a white tomato. So a lot of this is just get asking people to find and go to tomato tastings where there are ranges of tomatoes. Farmers markets hold them. We used to hold one in Raleigh called tomato Palooza. We'd bring 250 types of tomatoes. It would be free. People would educate their palates and man, talk about a good time. Um, yeah, that would oh, be great. But we've never done a blinded version of it. And I would love to try sometimes 
getting eight different tomatoes of eight different colors and having people look at them, then blindfold them and give them pieces and saying, you tell me what color tomato you think you just ate. It, they would, that would be an interesting, yeah, they would utterly fail, sample, utterly yeah. fail. Now, acidity is a different thing altogether. And the, the USDA did us a, a great favor and maybe annoyed a lot of people at the same time because about maybe 20, 30 years ago, they, they amassed a whole selection of tomatoes of sizes, colors, shapes, and they measured the pH, which is a measure of the acidity. And lo and behold, they found that essentially the pH of all tomato varieties is essentially within a, within a range of significant factors. It's the same. So why do some tomatoes taste really acidic and some tomatoes taste really sweet or not acidic? It turns out that those same genetics of the tomatoes that have so many different genes for plant growth habit and colors and size, they also code for widely varying levels of sugar. So you, what people would call an acidic tomato is just a low sugar tomato. When people would mm -hmm. consider a uh, low acid tomato is a high sugar tomato. Now, this takes away a, a, some labeling that people use at farmers markets now. Buy this low acid German pink, buy this low acid yellow. The correct sign would be come and try this high sugar yellow. Come and try this. Right. And it sounds pink. better. Yeah, I think so. Now, for people that say they're allergic to tomatoes because of the acidity and, the, and they want to eat the yellow or the pink ones, there's something else at play. And it could be a placebo effect. It could be expectations or it could be maybe the pigment thing or who knows. But the good news to canners is that you can can any color tomato you want together because the fact that mm -hmm. all tomato acidity is the same, you use the blue book. I like to add a little lemon juice to mine just yep. because. But man, to be able to go into your cupboard in the winter and pull out a jar of tomatoes that have any of 150 types in it, and they're like a jewel box of different colors, you can create mm -hmm. summer in your kitchen by using those, and you get all of the different diversity. Yeah. So, um, yeah. yeah, it's all fun. So what but, is what is the acidity? What's the pH level of a tomato? They, they tend to be right around 4.2, and maybe they can vary mm -hmm. from 4.15 to 4.3, but you're talking within like an extremely narrow range. For those listening, uh, if you're canning tomatoes, you're gonna you shouldn't hot water bath them unless you do like what Craig said. Put some lemon juice, because a tablespoon or a yep. teaspoon in the bottom. Look that up, and then hot water yeah. bath it because safe canning requires a pH of uh, under right. four. And the lemon juice for people, and you can use something like a citric acid, which is sold <clears throat> if you don't want to uh, get the flavor of the lemon. However, we found you don't even know that you've added the lemon juice in once you can those tomatoes. No, All it does is it provides the little boost of acidity, like you say, to take it to a safe level. And we've kept our hot water bath uh, quarts of tomatoes for two years, and they taste like the day you can them. It really does preserve them for a long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, tomatoes are great. <laughs> now that we've, we've grown the seeds, we've separated yep. the seeds, we've transplanted the seeds, uh, we've talked about color. Let's talk about a little bit about pruning and trellising. Sure. Uh, suckers are something that I always had a love-hate relationship <laughs> with because I'm flipping them all off until the day I realized, like, wait a minute, I can get tomatoes off of that yeah, sucker. Yeah. So if I if I let it go in this direction, talk a little bit about suckers sure. and you you could explain it better yeah. than I did. So tomato, all all indeterminate tomatoes throw copious amounts of suckers because that tomato is all it's trying to do is survive. And every sucker is nothing more than another main stem. So you're growing this tomato. It starts growing upright. You see this plant, you get your better bar, you get the brandy wine. All of a sudden you're seeing this new growth appear at a 45 degree angle tucked in between the main stem and where the leaves come out. And that happens every place up the, up the stem. That sucker, right. and that could be rooted yes. as well. So that and you could bring and, but like you it. say, that sucker itself will, of course, have flowers and leaves. And every forty-five degree mm -hmm. angle, every junction, you'll have a sucker. So your plant will become a Rubik's cube of complexity within about two or three feet off the ground. Now, if you now oh, yeah. suckers do not make tomatoes larger or smaller. They do not draw energy from the plant. What they do is they create some good shade to keep sun scaled off the fruit because tomatoes do not need direct sun on them to ripen. They, they ripen most happily if they're in the center of the plant and they're not getting sunburn on them from the direct sun. So add it, yep. so keeping suckers helps to shade tomatoes to keep them in good shape. If you cage tomatoes and we're talking, you know, a lot of people like to get the concrete reinforcing wire because you get the six inch holes and you can reach in and, and pick the tomatoes. 
about six feet high, put a stake in the middle, stick that tomato in the ground. If you get the room in the rich soil, don't prune a thing. Let that cage become a tube of tomatoes. The yield will be enormous. You'll get 30 to 40 pounds of fruit off that plant or more. Why people need to deal with suckers is if, like me, they stake and they have to control the spacing between plants. They want to keep them vertical. Mm -hmm. So what I will do is I'll pound my eight-foot stake next to that plant if I'm growing in the garden or even in a container. I'll put it indeterminate in a 10-gallon container, roll it up to the edge of my driveway so I can pound that stake into the lawn. And then I'll, I'll think, okay, if I let just the main stem grow, I'm going to get blossoms every eight to 10 inches. If the weather is right for that variety, they'll set fruit. If the weather is not right, and this is especially with the big fruited tomatoes, they don't really like to set fruit where the temperature gets over 90 degrees and it gets really humid. If that's the case, mm -hmm. you could conceivably have a beautiful eight foot plant with not a single tomato on it because every time that plant flowered, the temperature wasn't right and the flower dropped off, but you've pruned all of your suckers off. So there's no hope for future tomatoes. So what I do is I hedge my bets and I say, I'm going to let three suckers develop and they're the three lowest ones on the plant. One, two, three. All other suckers get removed from the main stem and from the suckers themselves. Meaning when I'm three feet off the ground, I know I'm managing four stems, the original main and the three suckers. And I take sisal twine, the, the really cheap brownish twine you can buy at the big, and I'll mm -hmm. do a loop every six inches up the plant to gather those four stems together and tie them to my central stake. So I have a column. That column is about a foot and a half wide. I can space my plants now two feet apart or so because I've got some space. You have quadrupled your potential yield because on those three suckers that are all going to flower, the odds are that you're going to get flowering on a plant on one of those four stems at a time where they're going to be happy with the temperature and humidity. And I find that by four stemming my plants, the center and the three suckers, I'm getting 15 or 20 pounds of fruit, often indeterminate once it hits the eight foot mark. Once it hits the top of your stake, mm -hmm. top them. Because a lot of times people are growing in the growing season means anything that then starts looping up and over it may flower and it may look healthy, but those tomatoes probably aren't going to mature before frost. So just, yeah, so top things, that plant, yeah. put the energy into the fruit that forms. And if you want, let one more sucker lower on the plant develop to give yourself a fifth stem and then grow that up to the eight foot mark and tie that to the rest rather than that big droopy mess that often we let, and I'm guilty of this, you let this thing cascade over, get heavy and droopy, and then you have a thunderstorm and it pulls your whole stake over because you have all of this counterweight that's going the other direction. So this is where tomato growers need to be a little bold and brave and get out those little snippers and just remove some of those excess suckers. And, uh, you know, with the extra air circulation and extra spacing, you get less foliar disease. You have less of a highway of disease spread because you've got all your tomato plants intermingled and, and uh, touching. And you may find that you have a better yield having less vine. And it's one of those counterintuitive things. Yeah, I noticed that because yeah. that's what I do. I go through yeah. and I trim out suckers yeah. and leaves that aren't looking just right and just let the airflow get in there. And and I found that helps tremendously with uh and you just said disease. something extremely important that I actually came to about maybe 10 years ago where people will bemoan the fact that their plants are dying from the bottom up. So number one, they're not mulching. They're letting the rain hit the ground, that the dirt splashing up and infecting the lower foliage. So you plant your plant, you put down a nice mulch, and it could be untreated grass clippings, it could be shredded leaves, it could be shredded wood bark, but you're, you're creating an air and permeable barrier between uh, the dirt and your plants so you're not splashing up. That will slow things down, but it's inevitable you get that lower speckling that's that's uh, uh, early blight and it's septorial leaf. There are, there are two fungus that blow in. If you regularly go out every few days and remove that lower foliage as it starts spotting, you will really slow down the spread of that. You will extend the life of your uh, productive plants by weeks and months. And you really don't need to spray at that point because you're getting rid of all of the sources for the diseases in the tomatoes. Now, uh, seed yeah. saving, because I did save some of the seeds from um, yep. the dwarf yep. tomatoes. And I tried to buy locally here something that's in my, I don't know if it makes any difference or not, uh, but I try to buy, if I'm buying seeds, something that grows in the same zone or was grown in the same zone for seeds. Uh, 
And what's your method for seed saving? I generally take it, squeeze it, and ferment it in a little bit of water, and then just yeah. keep rinsing. Yep. The ones that float are no good. The ones that sink yep. are good. So right? uh, label your cups. if you're say- So let's start from, from the beginning because a lot of people ask this. Uh, let's say, it, like in my garden, I've got 150 types of tomatoes, and they're grown very close to each other. And people ask, are you getting cross-pollination? And what I've noticed is when the bees – like to visit my tomato flowers or a little bit later in the year. So I've found that if I concentrate on saving seeds from the first set fruit low down in the plant, the bees are busy elsewhere. Some of them haven't hatched. Some of them finding basil flowers or other things. I'm getting about 98, 99% purity, even with plants planted next to each other by focusing on those first few set fruits. If you want to guarantee purity, then what you do is a blossom cluster forms. You take a little piece of floating row cover You loop that around the unopened blossoms and twisty tie it. Let those blossoms open and set tomatoes. Remove your reme or floating row cover bag. Mark that because those tomatoes, you've blocked the insects from getting in, meaning those are 100% going to be pure. You save seeds. You just get your ripe tomatoes, squeeze it into a label cup. I like to put them on my front porch for three days with a loose paper towel over them because once they start fermenting, the flies get fascinated and they will find them and lay their little eggs in there. Oh, yeah, and it gets ripe smelling too. It gets ripe. That's why you want to do it outside. It's one of the worst smelling. You know, I used to work in a produce section and they used to have me clean out the 10-pound bags of potatoes when the rotten ones would form. Rotten potatoes, worst smell in the world. Fermenting tomatoes, second worst smell in the world really bad. Yeah. Bring, but yeah. then when they're done, and you don't want to let them go more than three days on a warm day, you'll form a white fungal layer. That is what is breaking down the gel and the seed. The gel and the seed protects the germination inhibitor on each seed, which prevents the tomato from germinating inside the tomato. Because you think, this tomato seed sitting in a perfect environment. It's warm. It's wet. Why don't I have a whole bunch of tomato plants when I cut open. It's the it's the inhibitor that's on the seed that's protected by the gel. Within three days, you've broken that right. gel down. If you leave that a week, you'll have a cup of tomato plants. So add water, stir, decant off the goop. As you said, all of the good seeds sink to the bottom. Do that a few times. I sieve them, and then I spread them on an unglazed paper plate, and I just leave them in my dining room for about a week and put them in a labeled – I put them mm-hmm. in coin envelopes now. You will have – good quality tomato seed that will germinate at 90% up to 12 to 14 years. Um, that surprised me because I've, I, the, the common, uh, I guess it would be gardening myth is your seeds are only good for two or three years. Yep. Tomatoes have great longevity. And uh, I've, so I've been doing some germination studies on this and I find that tomatoes will do really well up to about year 12. They start dropping off a little bit year 13, 14. They tend to go off a cliff to zero at year 16 or so. Now, wow. now if dried seed is put in little Ziplocs and the air is kept out and they're in the freezer, you can go 20, 30, 40, 50 years at that point. So it's uh, yeah. keeping them cold and dry. Um, and that's how seed banks do it, the seed organizations. Now, you should hear about You probably have seen M- I, the fellow's name. It's a YouTube channel, MI Gardener. Have you seen that? No, no. No. Okay, look it up, M.I. Gardener. He found, it was like an 80-year-old seed packet and, uh, that was somebody had put into a frame right. and just had it on the wall. And he took it apart and he opened it up and there were seeds in there. Uh-huh. And he planted them. And I'm pretty sure he got a tomato plant out of that. So, I mean, that would be like an 80-year-old, that's like Jurassic tomato. And it could have been that he used just the right combination. Because what I'm looking at, and I haven't, answered this question yet. Do tomato seeds go dormant or tomato seeds die? So what I'm doing now is a bit of a study of different types of treatment of, uh, you know, things like microwaving, things like putting in boiling water, putting in dilute bleach, in dilute tea, in nitrogen source. Um, I'm, this is kind of an ongoing study, but I've not found anything yet that has woken up seeds over 20 years. But it could be that seeds that are in a certain atmospheric condition could put them into a bit of a form of suspended animation and that when you go germinate them. I know of a story where someone has located a seed that was in a strata of soil that could have been from over 100 years ago and got a seed to germinate. And it could essentially be you've got just the right conditions to protect that seed. So there's a lot we don't know about this, but uh, I always love to hear of these discoveries because it's fascinating. 
Yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure he got the seed to grow, but I haven't heard anything after that. He didn't do another video on that, I I think. So good. Well, Craig, thank you very much for your time today. Uh, I know you've got a million things to do because I know you've got a million <laughs> things to do. Uh, so, so I'm going to let you go, but thank you very much for your time today. And I'm going to post a link uh, to your website Great. in the show notes here. Yeah. Uh, this will also go on our, our blog uh, and I'll post some links there to the book as well. Uh, and I don't know if people order the book directly through you. Are you signing them? Or? Yeah, pe- people can get them through me. Uh, clearly, the best way to reach me, and people can find it on my website, is just to email me. And it's just nctomatoman at gmail.com. I, I usually spend the last hour or two of every day answering every email that I get in that day because we're we're creating this world of avid gardeners and if people are going to take the time to ask me something i owe it to them to get back to them quickly so that's one of my favorite parts of the day and and you know and as a chef i need to share with you i'll send you an email that one of the greatest things i've ever had with tomatoes it's a roasted tomato crostata where you essentially slow roast tomatoes for a couple of hours till they're almost sun-dried texture and then you you use a goat cheese, pesto, pine nut, garlic, lemon peel, Parmesan Reggiano base to put those on and bake them in a cornmeal crust. I'll, I'll send that to you because I'd like you to publicize that on your website. <laughs> I'd love it. Yeah. yeah. And you have to be a goat cheese. But thank you again for joining us on the show. And uh, we'll, we'll talk later. I've enjoyed it immensely, Dave. Thanks so much for the opportunity. And everybody have a great garden and ask anything, anytime. Great. Thank you, Craig. Sure. Hey, thanks for listening to the show. That was a really great talk with Craig LaHoulier, a pretty enthusiastic guy about tomatoes and uh, just a nice guy all around. Uh, I'm going to post some of the show notes. In the show notes, I'll post some links to some of the sites we talked about and uh, to his website so you can follow up on the Dwarf Tomato Project. Future shows, we're going to be talking with Jesse Harriet from Copper City Coffee Roasters. He's a small coffee roaster in Ithaca, New York. All things coffee is what we're going to talk about. Stephanie Thurow, who is a canner and fermenter. She just has a book. Uh, He had a book published and will be coming out soon in addition to the book she already has. And we're going to be talking canning and fermenting. Tina McPherson will be joining us soon also. Tina has a small business here in central New York, a food-based business. Going to be talking about some of the ups and downs about starting a small food-based business. Maybe Tina will have some pointers for you, so tune in for that one. Hey, thanks again. Bye-bye.